All right, I want to get started into our series today. Uh, today we're talking about Redeemer, and for some of you, I do not mean Phil Fulmer, uh, even though that is on some of your minds with the word Redeemer. Next year, we will be at the SEC Championship, right? All the people said amen. It's a rebuilding year. For 10 years, it's been a rebuilding year, right? For 10 years, we've been rebuilding. It's like the house that never gets built. You know, if our administrators would read the Bible, who builds without counting the cost first? You know, anyways, all right, that's another sermon. That's another sermon. That's been an interesting week for volunteer fans and for those of us who aren't always willing to call ourselves volunteer fans based on behavior of our team. But uh, anyways, um, we want to continue with our series. I think what I want to share with you today may be may be the most important of the, of the series. That does not mean you can just skip the rest of 2017. But what I want to share with you is significant. Last week, if you weren't here, you can, you can go online and, and hear last week's sermon on the podcast. Uh, and I tried to lay out for you a very foundational understanding of this theology of redemption, that we are in need of a Redeemer. That when we come and talk about the birth of Christ, many of the ideas that we have surrounding the birth of Jesus just are not true. The idea that it was a very peaceful environment, that Jesus came into a, to a, a, a time when things were just going well and everyone was out under the stars gazing up at the stars at night and this baby just happens to be born and in a manger that is, you know, a lot more comfortable than any of your memory foam mattresses that you have at home. I mean, it's just warm and cuddly and just the right amount of glow because that's the way art depicts much of the birth of Jesus. And what I also shared with you last week is an interesting thing. If we go back and look at kind of the, the history of the formation and beginning of the church after the resurrection of Jesus, there was not a recognized celebration of the birth of Jesus in the first century. This was not something that was recognized. And so when we put all this emphasis on Christmas about celebrating the birth of Jesus, early believers, they were more focused on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus than they were the birth of Jesus. And we shared with you in our last few weeks about some of the reasons that Christmas became so important and it had nothing really to do with Jesus. That was just a convenient way to have this celebration. Through time, we in the church have embraced Christmas as a time to recognize the coming of the Messiah, which we rightfully should. But as we do that, it would be wrong of us to focus so much on the coming of the Savior and not focus on what the Savior did for us, which is why we're doing a series called Redeemer. So as we go through this, I'm not going to repeat what I did last week. Uh, our primary idea that I wanted you to get was to redeem something means to take ownership by paying a debt for something. So as we look through the story of the redemption of humanity through Jesus Christ, what we find is that Jesus paid our debt, thereby regaining ownership of us. Now, that is not a very popular idea to say you are now owned by somebody else. In fact, our nation has struggled with that very idea with so many negative connotations that for me to say you are now owned by Christ could, if you don't understand what redemption is, could lead you to a very negative 
understanding of this. That's why I want to share what I have to share with you today. Because whenever we come to know Christ, whenever we truly become his disciples, we are no longer the person that we were before. Now, for some of us, you, you have, you, you're here for different reasons. Some of you, it's you know, kind of built into your DNA to be involved in a church, and maybe you grew up in the church, and this is just part of your family. Your faith is important to you, and you really can't think of a time in your history that you were not active in a church. That's, that's kind of my story. I, I cannot think of a time that I was not active in a church from the time that, you know, I could first remember anything. We, we were always in church. For some of you, you're here because you have been through some traumatic experiences, and in fact, Christmas may not even be a good time for you. While most of us think of it as a wonderful time of parties and friends and celebration and overeating and gift-giving and gift-receiving and all of those things, for others, Christmas is a very lonely, very sad time for them. You're not here because you're here to celebrate. You're here because you have learned that to get through life, you have to lean on Christ. There are others that have come from different backgrounds, and you would do anything to take back the history of your life. There are decisions that perhaps were good in your life, but there were some decisions that led to much pain and hardship that if you were given the chance, you would go back and you would change those things. But as you and I know That is not the way life nor time works for us. We do not just get to go back and have a redo, though I would love to have redos in my life, as you probably would as well. You're here because you have found solace, comfort, and a place to be accepted in Him. What I wanted you to see last week was that the redemption of your life through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is one that it frees you from whatever background you come from, from whatever past that you have, from whatever sins you have committed, for whatever failings you have experienced, if you're one of these people that feels like no matter what you do, you fail, you are redeemed from that. And what many people struggle with is truly accepting this idea of a redeemer, and they will carry those things with them, constantly trying to pay the price for past sin mistake in their life. That is not the idea of Redeemer. Redeemer says, I have bought you. You are mine. Those things are forgiven. And what we have seen is that while God has wrath for those who reject him, he has forgiveness for those who receive him. And his redemption redeems us from the wrath of God that we all are due because we all are sinful people. As we go through this, I want you to understand that the life that you once lived is not the life that you need to live any longer. It's been coined new life. It's been coined an exchange life. Whatever you want to call it, Jesus makes you a completely different person. And so by the the end of today, I hope that you will see that and you will understand that by being a different person, he actually calls us to a higher standard of living that we joyfully accept because we see that it is the way that leads to life. When Jesus came out on the scene... He was looking for many of the things, or the people, not he, but the people in Israel were looking for many of the same things that people today are looking for. They were looking for happiness. They were looking for freedom. They were looking for a good life. And for the 70 years prior to the birth of Jesus, they had not experienced that. 
There have been many times in the history of Israel in which they had either been conquered or destroyed or cast out of their homeland or, or, or whatever. And this is one of those times. As we look through the series Protestant, we found that Rome had come in about 70 years before this. Israel was no longer its own nation. It was now a token kingdom of Rome. The priesthood had been replaced And now the priests that were in power were in power because they were sympathetic to Rome and what Rome wanted, which was a docile, peacekeeping, tax-giving pocket kingdom. That's what they wanted, and that's what they had. Up until this time that Jesus is born, I've shared with you that there were at least three other reformers or rebels who decided they were going to fight Rome, and they were called the Messiah. And in each of those three cases, they lost their lives in a very public way and shaming way with the hopes that no one else would try to fight against Rome. When Jesus came on the scene, this is a time of great turmoil. This is a time of great political upheaval. This is a time where the nation of Israel is wondering, where is God? And they have cried out to him, which interestingly, anytime you look throughout Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, when God hears people crying out to him, he answers. It's an amazing thing. It's one of the reasons that prayer is so important. Because God is listening to us. In fact, Scripture in the New Testament goes so far as to say, God's not working because you're not asking him to. Which is really condemning when we go, well, is, it that, is, it, is it really that simple? And so as we look at this story, Jesus comes into this political upheaval at a time when a census is being made. And, you know, the reason for census is not to brag about how many citizens you have. It's to make sure everybody's paying their fair share of taxes. That's the purpose of the census. And so as Jesus comes in, the people are looking for a political savior. But that is not what they got. And instead, as he comes in, the birth of Christ was not a political savior, but was the perfect redeemer entering the world to save us from our sin and God's wrath, which is way more important than our political freedom, our physical freedom, or our ability to do whatever we want, whenever we want. He was the perfect redeemer. And one of the things I think we struggle with in the world today, and it's one of the reasons that the church is in a little bit of disarray right now. Not sure how to respond to what's going on in the world around them. Culturally, kind of out, but not kind of out, kind of in. But a lot of what we're experiencing, we're experiencing in this nation only because the church around the world is flourishing. They are under very different circumstances that we are. They don't have the kinds of freedoms that we have. They don't have the kinds of luxury or the the, the excess that we have. They don't, they don't have those things, and the church is flourishing. But yet here in America, where we should be the perfect, most fertile soil for faith to grow and increase, we tend to be a little lost. Kind of like a, a Tennessee Volunteer fan. <laughs> I hate to keep bringing that up, you know. I hate to keep bringing that up. It's not a dig. I, anyways, I'm an alum, but anyway, that's another story. I want, that's, there's two sermons coming out of me today. I've got to make sure that one of them is good. And, uh, but one of the reasons that the church is in a little bit of turmoil is because people don't really know what God wants from them. They know God wants something, and they've heard from different people that that something is different. 
From some, he, he just wants faith. And, and if we have enough faith, he'll give us anything we want. I mean, in, in, in fact, if, if I want more money, he'll give me more money. If I want you know, a better job, he'll give me a better job. If, if I want to be healthier, he'll, he'll make me healthier if I'll just have more faith. And that always leads us to the problem of well, what happens when you don't get those things? What happens to your faith? Which is where we see a lot of struggling in that area. We also have people to say what God wants is for you to do about three or four things every single day. And if you do that, God will be very happy with you. He wants you to come to church and bring your Bible and read your Bible and give your tithe and serve and go on down the list. And yet people who do that religiously will often find themselves very empty still and ask ourselves, why do I feel empty if I'm doing what God wants? Does God not, does God not reward me for this? And we look through at what's going on in the church in America, and we look through not only history but Scripture as it teaches us what does it look like to truly follow him. If our only thought of Jesus is that he is our ticket to heaven, we show that we don't know the true power of his full redemption because there are many that believe faith is just about getting into heaven. And the reason that becomes a problem is because you have a whole lot of life probably before that point. And what are we going to do in that part of our lives? And there are many that believe you should just go out and follow your dreams. The problem is if everybody follows their dreams, somebody gets stepped on, right? Because for me to fulfill my dreams, maybe I need what you want for your dreams, and there may not be enough for both of us to have our dreams, so many times our dreams have to do with somebody else missing out. If you want to be the most successful person in your field, in your industry, and everybody looks to you at the, as the expert, then somebody else cannot be the expert. If you're going to be the expert, no one else can be, right? Then there's no real expert. Everybody, it's just common knowledge. That's the problem with our lives, believing that we're just going to pursue our dreams, is most of the time our dreams have nothing to do with God's plans and God's purposes. They have everything to do with our personal perceived fulfillment, which what we see over and over and over again in our lives is that as we pursue those dreams, even if we attain them, they still seem to be empty. And they don't satisfy us in the way that we thought they would. That's why those who don't have much imagine that if they had more, life would be so much better. And yet many of those who have very much still wish their life was more than it is. It's an incredible thing when we understand that the redemption that he was providing us was not just a ticket to heaven. That if we say the right things, pray the right things, go to church the right number of times, we'll make it into heaven and then everything will be okay. But instead, it is a redemption for here and for now. A change in us now. As we read things like, I have come that you would have abundant life. If you do not perceive that you have abundant life, there's a problem with reading that verse, right? I don't feel abundant. I feel empty. I feel like things aren't going well. So what's wrong with that? Well, there must be something wrong with me. Well, it may be that the way that we view our world and the way we view our relationship with Jesus is not the way he intended us to view it. So how is that to be viewed? When we read through in Scripture, we find that consistently Jesus 
goes against all of our common rational thought to tell us what it looks like to follow him and to know this redemption. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24 says, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's one of those unpopular verses that everybody knows, but we kind of ignore, like pretend it's not there. Deny myself, does not feel good. Pick up my cross. I've seen the passion of, of the Christ. I don't want to pick up a cross. You know, we, we look at these things, and it's an uncomfortable thing to read to say, that's not what I want, because that goes in the face of everything you and I grew up believing was good in the world. Subjecting ourselves, denying ourselves, and suffering. That does not feel good in any context anywhere. No one celebrates that, and if they do celebrate that, we try to get them mental health, right? Not a favorable desire, and yet Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you've got to embrace this. So why would anyone ever embrace this? Why would you want this? One of the things that disciples of of Christ have experienced, and I don't mean Christians, and I don't mean churchgoers, I mean disciples of Christ, the kind that he talks about in Matthew 16. They have experienced the redemption that comes through Christ, which is a life-changing experience. It is not just a belief statement. It is a life-changing experience. And it is requiring the death of our life as we know it. George Mueller was an evangelist who was compelled by his faith to begin caring for orphans in the late 1800s. And it is said that he cared personally for over 10,000 orphans. He was also dedicated to education and built over a dozen schools that would provide some type of Christian education for over 100,000 students, many of who were orphans. He was compelled by this belief that God wanted him to do something. This is what he said about his faith in Christ. He said, there was a day when I died, died to self, my opinions, preferences, tastes, and will, died to the world, its approval or censure, died to the approval or blame even of my brethren or friends, and since then have studied only to show myself approved unto God. Why would he do this? It is said that George Mueller, not to be confused with Robert Mueller, who's in the news, it's been said that George Mueller never asked for a single penny from anyone in order to accomplish all of this. It was in faith and in God's direction and move in his life that accomplished all of this care for others, which is interesting because Jesus says that's exactly who he came for. We go back and we read through Scripture. Who does Jesus say I am most concerned with? The oppressed, the captive, the hurting, the blind, the lame, the sick. Is that because God doesn't care about healthy people that are successful in life? In fact, I believe the reason he says that is because it is more than likely the ones who are oppressed, hurting, captive, lame, sick, blind, who are willing to reach out to him and receive this redemption. Because once we feel like we've got a handle on life, we don't need Jesus anymore. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, you will never know the fullness of Christ until you know the emptiness of everything but Christ. 
I read these to you because I find them so fascinating. That when Jesus talks about abundant life, when we read through Scripture about what it looks like to know Jesus and to walk with Him, to experience abundant life within our lives, it always involves some level of giving up on ourselves. It's like the, the, the answer to getting all the things you really hope for means giving up all the things you ever really hoped for and receiving something better. It's like walking through an invisible gate that most people see, but you know that nothing on this side of that gate matters anymore. And it's one of the great mysteries. It's one of the reasons that the gospel is described as a mystery. If it made sense, everybody would receive it. But it is a mystery only open to those who are willing to see it, those who are willing to give up on their lives here and in this place. Psalm 78 describes this type of person. It says, in spite of all this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. So he made their days vanish like a breath and their years in terror. When he killed them, they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. They remembered that God was their rock, the most high God, their redeemer. But they flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. We read that and we think, oh, but that's the Old Testament. It's not like that anymore. That Romans 1 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. So as we look through those types of passages, if we're honest, we see ourselves in them. And we recognize that throughout Scripture, there is a difference between those who really know Christ and those who think they know Christ. Those who really know Christ diverge on the path of life that most everyone else takes in some way or another. It doesn't mean we all move into some kind of commune and we all... Sing kumbaya around the campfire every night. That is not the life that Jesus has called maybe most, if not all of us to. But it does mean something diverges in our life from the rest of the world. And we go in a direction that no one else wants to go in. And it is not about getting to heaven. It is about knowing Jesus now, even if we feel like we're walking through hell. That is what it looks like to be redeemed. And that's why we read things like, Paul in Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It is this brokenness that affects us, that changes everything about us, so that when we see Jesus, we want him. Now, when we read these kinds of things like George Mueller or Spurgeon or Sproul or any of these folks, we read them and, and then our rational minds kick in and we're like, but come on, George, did you really die completely to yourself? Do you really only do the things that honor God? I mean, are you really a perfect Christian? And if any of us are honest, no matter how diligent or how faithful or how much we desire to follow Christ, we all fall short at some point, which we could simply say, you know what? We just should give up. Maybe this isn't possible. Maybe it can't happen. 
But I love what R.C. Sproul says about this. Not that you will be without sin. He says, the closer we are to God, the more the slightest sin will cause us deep sorrow. It is not that we don't sin, but it has an effect on us. And we desire to change. Now, it's easy to read this stuff and just say, you know, I just need to try harder. <laughs> I just need to do better. But I want, I want you, what I want you to see today is not that you need to try harder or that you need to be better. If that's the case, the series should not be about a redeemer. It should be about self-help. But this is about a redeemer. He changes things. He changes us. Jesus did not come so our lives could be better. Now, don't. Don't phase out on me here. Jesus did not come so our lives could be better. Jesus came to give us an entirely new life. An entirely new life. So if you are coming from a background that says, I still must pay for every mistake I've ever made in my life, Jesus came to give you a new life. If you believe that somehow, if you'll just try harder, Jesus will love you more. He has come that you will have a new life, not so you will try harder. Whenever you're living in a world that feels like it's falling apart around you, you do not have to fix everything. That's what Jesus is going to do in his time. But for now, he wants to give you a new life. This is one of the reasons that I believe that the church is flourishing in other parts of the, of the world and in places where Christianity is being persecuted severely. And I don't mean they don't put a manger scene on a coffee cup. I mean, they are, their lives are taken from them. It is flourishing because they are accepting this new life and they are experiencing it. While many of us will still follow in our same patterns of behavior and not experience that new life. So what does this look like? If he came to give us a new life, what does it look like? And we have this story of Jesus. There's a couple of things I want to show you before we end today. We have this story of Jesus and a Pharisee. And he says, Jesus says, to experience him, to experience Christ, you must be born again. This is where we get the, the phrase born again. And and, and some um, polls and statistics, they'll talk about Christians, about the born-agains because of this very unique teaching, this very unique belief that in order to know Christ and to be in the faith, so to speak, we must be born again. It was as confusing then as it is now, but this is, this is how this conversation goes between Jesus and Nicodemus. He says, it says in John chapter 3, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This, this was a guy who had political clout, political power. He was, he was educated in the Scriptures, but like many today, even though he knew the Scriptures, he didn't really understand them. He understood thoughts, concepts, doctrines, theologies. He could teach them. In fact, that was his job, was to teach these things to others. But there was a disconnect, and Jesus was pointing this out to him. There's a disconnect between all of your knowledge and what's going on in your heart. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, 
For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This is where we get this phrase. This this is pretty crucial. If you're not born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. I've lost my place. That's verse 3. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, the reason he says water and Spirit, if you've been with us for the last few months, you know we've spoken for we we spent a lot of time on the role of the Holy Spirit. Nothing happens in the life of a person without the Holy Spirit. You don't have an interest in Christ. You don't have an interest in the gospel. You cannot repent. You cannot receive salvation. You cannot live out your life as a Christian unless the Holy Spirit is there. This is one of the most incredible promises Jesus gave as he was about to ascend to heaven. I'm sending a helper that's going to be with you, and that helper is the Holy Spirit. And as we see the apostles, and especially Paul, outlining what the Holy Spirit will do from that point forward, nothing happens in the life of a person without the Holy Spirit. You never say, I want to know Christ without the Holy Spirit. You never say, or you never feel, or you never experience repentance without the Holy Spirit. No one does it on their own. This is one of the reasons we believe in faith, not in works, because works says, I could come up with these good ideas on my own. What Scripture says is, no, you can't. (laughs) It's only if you're listening to the Holy Spirit that, that you'll listen to any of this stuff. And so he's saying, unless you have received the Holy Spirit, and when he talks about being baptized with water, this is not a test of salvation. But baptism, while it is not some kind of supernatural experience that seals your faith, it is a demonstration of your faith and a willingness to obediently follow the instructions of Christ, who says, if you are going to be my follower, be baptized. So that's what he's saying here. Unless you are baptized by water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. We all understand that. We all know what that's like. We all know what that means. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Many of us don't understand this. And most don't receive it. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Which would be what any one of us would have said in that same situation. Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you don't understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and we bear witness to what we have seen. If you remember, we spent some time talking about What God is asking us to be is a witness, not an advocate. An advocate says, well, I I think these things are true. Let me tell you what I think is true. A witness has experienced them personally. That puts passion behind their faith. This is the person that is most effective in sharing their faith with others because they've seen it, they've experienced it, they haven't just heard about it. They know it to be true. But do you... Let me back up, verse 11. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know. We bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. 
If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And what he's talking about here is that mystery. There is a mystery to all of this. God is not able to be figured out by our rational thinking. And the way that he's working and what his plans are and his plan for redemption is something that you and I can only experience if he reveals this to us, not if we're able to do this on our own. In fact, much of our faith and this new life operates completely outside of the natural world in which you and I live. That's why those who criticize faith, their criticism doesn't affect us because they don't understand there is more to this world than they see with their eyes. George Mueller, same guy, said this as well. Faith does not operate in the realm of the possible. There is no glory for God in that which is humanly possible. Faith begins where man's power ends, which is another incredible mystery that we would do well to embrace within our lives, and that is that in our weakness we are made strong. And yet most of us in the room will do anything we can to appear strong to others. We'll do anything. I don't make mistakes. I've got all the right answers. You may not have all the right answers, but I have enough answers for me and you both. Let me tell you what the right answers are. Let me not tell you where I struggle. I'm not going to share my own personal sins. I find one of the most uncomfortable things people have that I share when I share anything that I'm weak in. And I usually get some comment by someone, depending on how far I go, talking about weakness. Pastors, you know, probably shouldn't talk that much. I mean, probably shouldn't share that much about your weaknesses. There's some belief that to be successful means to not be weak. And yet what Jesus says is, if you're not weak, you'll never be successful at anything. Because it is in our weakness that we are made strong by the power of God within our lives because we no longer rely on ourselves and instead we rely on Him who is infinitely more able to accomplish things than we are. And again, the exchanged life, this new life, this difference in being redeemed and following Him now means that I don't wrap my life around the same things or same ideas of success that I used to. Now I have different understanding of success, and it has nothing to do with my own personal glory. It has everything to do with knowing Christ and making sure He's known to others. It's really an amazing thing. It's an amazing story. And Nicodemus, like many of us, we know so much about the Bible. But if we've not experienced this type of redemption, if we've not come to a place of brokenness, being fractured before Him and saying, please forgive me, let me receive you as my Savior, and then knowing that you have been given a new life, you have been born again, you are not the same person you were. If you don't ever experience that, then your faith will become very, very empty. And when anyone talks about the abundant life, you will eventually begin to roll your eyes. Oh, yeah, I've heard about the abundant life. God must just not love me as much as them. And that has never been the case. It's never that God loves somebody more. It's always about who is seeing farther and deeper of what God is really doing. The exchange life is a life that is rooted in Christ 
empowered by Christ, and can continually abides in Christ. And the incredible scripture that talks about this, we find in John chapter 15. What it looks like to truly be a Christian, what it looks like to truly be redeemed, what it looks like to truly follow after him. Verse 15, or excuse me, chapter 15, verse 1 says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear, more, bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now, for those of you who come from a background of understanding the priesthood of the believer that says, I can go to God myself and I cannot lose my salvation once I become a Christian, you read these things and you say, oh, that doesn't make sense. Every branch that doesn't bear fruit, he takes away, but that's not, it goes against my background and my beliefs. You can't lose your salvation. And I would agree with you. You can't lose your salvation. However, that's not exactly how we understand the gospel if we look at it in its entirety. If we look at Jesus's, and I, I, go, I keep going back to this. We need to just spend a day on this, but I keep going back to his parable of the seeds, that there are people that believe they are in God's hand. They are in faith. They are part of the church, and they're not. This is one of the great struggles that I have with my faith now, understanding what does the church do with this? The number of people that go to church every week but never bow a knee to him. The number of people that are involved and they, they post verses on their social media channels followed up by some of the most vile things you would ever see anywhere. How, how does this person reconcile knowing God and this vile stuff? How is it that we have churches full of people, but when they walk out of the church, their life is vastly different than what they want anyone in the church to see? I'm not trying to point fingers here and say, you know, I'm watching all you people and you're all messed up. You know, I'm not, I'm not that good at noticing things. But I do see this as a whole. It's one of the reasons that evangelicals have such a terrible name. Understand, evangelicals will always have a terrible name. At the point that evangelicals have a good name within the world, something has gone wrong because Jesus said, you know what, people are going to hate you because of me. So anytime that we're trending well, something's probably gone wrong, right? But at least let us be hated and have a bad name for the right things, not the wrong things. And right now we're known for all the wrong things, right? So we could go into a list of those. We could go into a list of those, but we don't have time. But what he's saying, what I believe he's saying here is, there are people, they experience the gospel, and yet they never fully embrace it. And so when they don't fully embrace it, those are the people that believe and that are in some way maybe attached to the vine, but God looks at them and says, what you have is not real. And they're removed. This right here scares me to death. <laughs> because I know me. And I'm not that good. And I think, man, I just, God, keep those, keep those edge clippers away from me. Am I next? And if you ever feel that way, you're not alone. In fact, Paul felt that way. 
That's why Paul said, you know what, I'm running a race. I'm running to win because after all of this, I don't want to be disqualified. I mean, I want this. I want to experience this. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, which is why that uncomfortable time when you think I'm tracking with God and then something goes wrong and you go, God, did I do something wrong? Did I mess this up? And God says, no, I'm just, I am pruning you to be even better. But all pruning is uncomfortable. We have these beautiful rose bushes in our backyard. They're enormous and they have thorns. Some of you have the really nice roses that don't have thorns. We're not that well off. We have thorns in our rose bushes. So um, if we don't prune them back, they literally take over. And if you've ever tried to maneuver your way through a hedge of thorny rose bushes, it is not a comfortable experience. But every time we cut them back, they don't look all that great. You look at them and it's like, man, I think, I, I think we've killed them. You know, did anybody ever do that? Do you ever prune your stuff back and go, I think I went too far this time. I think I killed them. You know, sometimes you feel like, well, it's your kids too. You know, you keep pruning back at your kids, you think I've killed them. I've done killed them. I'm going to jail now. Not really. Don't take hedge clippers to your kids. But pruning is not meant to just be painful, even though it is. It's meant to prepare us for something better. And so even if you are exactly where God wants you, understand he's going to prune you so that you become even better. And it will feel uncomfortable. And if you're following the mind of the world, you will reject it at all costs because we reject anything that's uncomfortable. But when you know who Jesus is and what he wants to do in us, we receive it understanding there's greater purpose behind it. It's leading me somewhere else. Verse 3, already... You are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Verse 4. Abide in me and I in you. There is no religion on the face of the planet with this invitation. There was no other God nor worshiped deity. There's no other God. So, you know, there's no other God, but there's no other worshiped God. There's no other worshiped deity that invites you to abide in Him. There's a unique invitation because this is the God of the universe who has come for us to be with Him and to know Him and to be a part of His family. And not only can we abide in Him, He will abide in us. Which when we look at faith and we misunderstand that if I'm following faithfully, God is going to make everything work out exactly the way I want it to. Everything's going to feel good and comfortable. I'm going to be successful in whatever I do. And and it's going to be just wonderful and all of these things. And he says, oh, no, no, no. It's not. There's going to be times when you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, but you do not have to fear evil because I am with you. This is one of the mysteries of the gospel that people miss all the time. God is not trying to save you from pain. He's trying to walk with you through it. So every time that something bad happens and we say, why would God, why would a good God allow a bad thing to happen? God wants to walk with us through it because there is a greater purpose than living a life without pain. There's a greater calling And this new life is going to experience that, but it's also going to experience abiding in Him and Him abiding with us. You know, when you were, those of you who are married and 
or maybe if you're newly married, you know, there are times that uh, you're just with your significant other, and no matter what's going wrong around you, you don't really care because you're just with them. You know, you get older, you still are glad you're with them, but, you know, you just don't want things to go wrong anymore. <laughs> you know, you just, I'm still glad I'm with you, but I'm kind of tired of things going wrong. But when, you know, when you're young, you're just like, I don't care. The whole world could be burning down. I'm here with you. This is so wonderful. You never, you haven't experienced that? All right. You just. I don't mean to make light, but that's a little bit of what it looks like to walk with God. The world could be burning around, but I'm with you. I'm with you. You're with me. And when we see that He is a great treasure that nothing else compares to, or as as R.C. Sproul says, until you find out the world, nothing in the world means anything compared to Christ. You won't understand it. He says again, verse 4, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, Jesus is saying. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. There is an outward sign that you are abiding in Christ and that looks like spiritual fruit. There will be a change in you when you're tapped into the vine that gives life and that gives power, and that gives purpose, and that gives forgiveness, and that gives you a future and a hope. And it looks like fruit, spiritual fruit. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. In other words, if you want to know if somebody's a disciple, we can simply say, you know what, it's just not for me to judge. Well, that is true. However, you can look at their life, and if there is no fruit, it's a pretty good bet they're not abiding in Him, and if they're not abiding in Him, they don't really know Him. Now, the problem comes when we start defining what that fruit looks like. Now, we could certainly go back and look at, well, what is a fruit of the Spirit? And that is part of what he means. But part of the fruit of, uh, that he's talking about is also our effect on others. The ability to love others, the ability to love unlovable people, to be able to love our enemies, to be able to forgive people, and more importantly, through our love, to demonstrate that redemption is available to them because that is our mission to go out and share with the world that redemption is available. When we look at somebody's life, no matter how loudly they shout that they're a Christian, there is no fruit. They do not know Christ. I found that many times those who shout the loudest of their faith are some of the ones you need to listen to the least. And some of the quietest about their faith demonstrate abiding in him the most verse 8 by this my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples as the father has loved me so i have loved you abide in my love if you keep my commandments you will abide in my love just as i have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love these things i have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full and there lies the mystery of why so many people do not have joy in their lives. 
and yet think they know Christ. They're not abiding in Him. He is not the center of their life. They have not rejected everything else as less important to Him. Now, when Scripture tells you that He needs to be the most important thing, you need to reject everything else. You know, another difficult verse in Scripture is the one that says, anybody who loves their father or mother more than me, I reject them. That's hard to read if you have a mom and a dad you like. Right? If you have kids, the idea that you've got to reject your kids in order to know Christ That can lead you into a real emotional quandary. What do I do here? And he's not saying, you know what? I'm the most, I'm the only important thing. And now you can, you've got to hate everything else. I mean, you've got to hate Krispy Kreme donuts. Come on. I mean, I can't do that, Jesus. They're good, especially when they're right off the grill. What he's saying is I have to be the most important. And you cannot fully understand everything else until you put me in the right place. And everything else falls into place. I'm not called to hate my wife or my mom or my dad or my kids, but I'm called to put God in the place of center in my life, not them. Parents today struggle with this. There's so many bad things your kids can get into, right? We're scared to death for our kids. It's one of the reasons that private school uh, enrollment is, is just skyrocketing. Amazing thing. Those schools have exact same problems as public schools. Exact same problems. I'm not saying they're not, it's not a good education. I'm just telling you they have the exact same problems. They have the exact same people in them. It's just the way it is. When we truly understand who Christ is, it changes our response to everything. One of the reasons we struggle with putting our kids in the place of sinners is because we're so scared for them. We want to protect them from everything. And when you protect them from everything, eventually you won't be there. Then who will protect them? I don't want them to be disappointed. Well, guess what? Sometimes life stinks. I don't want them to get hurt by anybody. Guess what? There are people bent on hurting people, and you will eventually be in their crosshairs. Eventually. Instead, we have to teach our kids not to avoid pain, but how to deal with pain. Sometimes that means we got to tell our kids no. And I like telling my kids no as much as you like telling your kids no. To be honest, sometimes I do enjoy it a little bit. I, I, I revel in it. I think about it. I rewind the events in my head, and I want to say again, and I'll walk by them in the house and just say no, and they won't know what I'm talking about. I'm just reliving the moment. It felt so good. Don't think less of me. You know you do it too. Sometimes we do that because we teach them how to deal with disappointment, how to be good people, how to appreciate the things that they have. When we give them full reign and control in our families because they are the center of our lives and we don't want to hurt or disappoint them, then we put God in a different place and everything goes wrong in our families. The exchange life is a life that is rooted in Christ, empowered by Christ, and continually abides in Christ. As we read through that John chapter 15, the exchanged life bears fruit in the world and experiences joy at overcoming the world. This is where joy comes in. Let me read real quickly Ephesians 4. 
says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding and alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to their hardness of heart, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But they do not, excuse me, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, verse 22, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is where we see this new life that we're given. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. I love this. He's now saying, you've got a new life, but it's not like that it's just going to run itself. I mean, you have to have put effort into living out this new life too. And he goes into several ways to do that. Putting off falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and don't sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such is good for building up. Oh, man, if we would embrace that in the church, the whole church would change. As fits the occasion, it may give grace to those who hear and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. In other words, give to others what you've received from Christ. Now let me, let me run through. I've got to finish up because I've got more to share, but I'm out of time. But I want you to see these things. One, your new self looks a lot like Jesus looked. Not the Son of God, but the way in which he walked, that's what your new life looks like. Righteous and holy. Your new self is free from the wrath of God because of Jesus. You can put that out of your minds. For whatever courtroom you have in your minds of what heaven's going to look like, and he lays out his case against you for all your sins, It is gone, paid for. Your new self will bear fruit in a world that celebrates decay. This is, again, part of the mystery. Much of the world that we hold up as people who get it are celebrating decay. Just look at what's happening with all of the sexual assault accusations. All of the people in power that would tell us how we're supposed to live our lives. And yet behind closed doors, they're very different people. It will bear fruit in a world that celebrates decay. That is what Jesus is doing, is bringing life into a dying place, starting with our own lives. Your new self will experience joy unlike anything you have experienced before, even if you still experience pain in this world, which is so crucial. This is what I want to wrap up with. This is what I just, and I hadn't planned on doing this earlier in the week, but part of my reading for this week just reminded me of this. There are different places, as I've shared, that I struggle with how things are perceived in Scripture and, and read them. And I think, 
It just doesn't make sense to me what I know about God and why we celebrate these things. And one of those people is Jacob. Jacob is a really a kind of a terrible guy. Now, we named our son Jacob, and no, in, no intention to mix those two people. But if you really go through and look at the story of Jacob, what we find is that Jacob is not a real honest dude. I mean, if you look at the story, Jacob steals from his brother. He steals his birthright, and he steals his blessing. Steals it. And who helps him but his mom, Rebecca? But whenever we think about the Old Testament, we think, oh, Jacob is one of the patriarchs, one of the founding fathers of our faith. And we look at Rebecca and go, oh, Rebecca was so beautiful, and they were so in love, and these wonderful lovebirds. They were rotten people. And I think, God, why do we celebrate these people? They did so many terrible things. And Jacob kind of got some, some of his just due because he wrongs Esau, and Esau's out to kill him, and Esau's made out to be the bad guy. But you know what? Esau's actually the good guy in the story. And then he goes over, and he goes to see uh, his mother's brother, Laban. And the story of Laban, I love this story because it's like Jacob gets what he deserves. Because we read the story, Jacob goes, and he says, oh, I'm going to work for you, for the for your daughter, Rachel. She's so beautiful, and I love her. I'm going to hold her and hug her and kiss her and all these wonderful things. And Laban, at the last minute on the wedding night, pulls Rachel out of the wedding tent and sticks Leah in there. Because she, I love this description, because she, she was weak of sight. Like I don't know if that means she couldn't see or nobody wanted to see her. I don't know which it meant. But whatever reason, Laban had a problem marrying off his oldest daughter. And he wasn't about to give his pretty young daughter that everybody wants to marry away and be stuck with, you know, her. He's got to get her a family too. And so he sneaks Leah in there. And we go and we think, Leah, she took the place of, oh, our beloved Rachel. But Rachel's not a nice person. She's not a nice person. Not only is she not a nice person, she doesn't even really love God. Because we find the story that when they finally left Laban's household, she steals the household gods because she wants to take them with her. She's worshiping the household gods, not God of the universe. So I read this, and it just these are one of those that I read, and I just say, God, why, why don't we talk about the fact that Jacob was such a terrible person? That he and Laban were like two peas in a pod. Whenever Laban says, you are bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, what he literally meant was like, you know, we were just alike. They were. And Laban did it to him again later. But I want you to listen to this. I read this about Leah, and it just hit me like a ton of bricks. That this is what it looks like to have the exchanged life. Scripture tells us that Leah was able to have children very easily. She had child after child after child, which led to a hatred by her sister Rachel because Rachel was barren. God had closed up her womb. She would eventually have a child and she would do all kinds of crazy things like send her handmaids to go sleep with Jacob. Another reason Jacob's not that great of a guy and then he would have children with them too and somehow it like was arrows in her quiver. I don't know. But Leah, knowing that Jacob did not love her, Leah, knowing instead that she was hated, Scripture tells us. Begins having child after child after child, and you can imagine the dysfunction in this woman's life, and yet I want you to see what happens when God gets involved. Genesis 29, it says, When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. 
She said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. First response. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. Verse 35 is what just kind of stopped me in my tracks. She conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. You know what I love about that? Each time she was looking for an answer for her earthly old self problems. God did not change that about her life. They would have this problem for the rest of her life. What he did was change her perspective. Each time she bore a child, she thought, this will make me loved in my husband's eyes. Finally, he brought her the place to say, you know what? He is, he's a real jerk. <laughs> but I'm here. And she said, in this moment, I will praise you. I can't address every circumstance that we all may have or deal with, all the pains that we experience, or why when we think of what it looks like to be blessed by God, our lives don't always look that way. There are so many different expectations about life. I can't answer all of those, but I can say this. God wants you to put on a new self. And when he does that, even if your circumstances don't change, the way you respond to them do because you understand the mystery. Jesus exchanged his life for your debt so that you could live a new life in him. As you celebrate this Christmas, I know you have all kinds of things that you're going to do together. Some of you, this is going to be a difficult time, and it's a time of loss and sorrow. Maybe you're missing someone that you're not going to celebrate Christmas with. But I want you to know that Jesus is there with us. The reason I am so drawn to the stories of Leah and Esau, Esau, the reason I say he's a hero is because at the end of the day, he had every reason to want to kill his brother. And we find this incredible reconciliation story where he hugs his brother and forgives him, even though he has taken everything from him. God changes his perspective. My prayer is that God will change your perspective and help you live in the new life that he bought with his blood. So that he will be the center of your life and you will experience true joy. Would you pray with me? Father, God, I pray that you would help us to experience you in ways that show us you are not only real, but you are alive and at work in our lives. Help us to experience the kind of joy that you talk about. Help us to experience the, the love and the forgiveness and the redemption that we have through you. Father, I pray for those in this room whose circumstances are not changing and you do not intend to change. I pray that you will change their perspective. Let them receive it with joy, knowing that they are grafted into you. You are abiding in them and they are abiding in you. You will cause them to bear fruit no matter what environment they're in. I pray for those that are going through a time of pruning and are misunderstanding this pruning as punishment that you are angry with them and you are punishing them, I pray that they would see that you are shaping them in to the person that you intended them to be. 
And while that can hurt, the results are beautiful. Father, help us to follow you faithfully, knowing that you are our treasure this Christmas time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.